Good morning. I invite you to turn your Bibles to Genesis 32. Genesis 32 is where we're going to be for our time together this morning. Uh, it's good to be back with all of you. Uh, we had a really good week at uh, Village Mission Staff Conference at Eagle Bay Camp near uh, Salmon Arm. Yeah, I was just on the, uh, the shoe swap there. Uh, it rained for most of the week, so it wasn't as, uh, uh, yeah, I guess as uh, nice as it uh, possibly could have been, but it was, still, it was still a good venue, it was still a good location, and it was good to visit with the other uh, village missionaries, and, and uh, we got to hear some really good talks from our uh, speaker for the week on being countercultural. But uh, while the week itself was good, there were also uh, several issues. So on the way there, uh, our van actually overheated in Cochrane, so like right, right near the, the beginning of the, the trip. Uh, so we had to get a mechanic to uh, put in a new thermostat. And uh, um, thankfully, there, there was one thermostat left at Canadian Tire. So I figured that was providential. And uh, there was a mechanic who was able to do work on a Sunday afternoon. So also providential. Uh, and then after that, we, we were able to, to make it there and, and back safely. Uh, but while we were there, right near the end of the week, uh, Rhea dislocated her elbow. Uh, so we had to, to take her to the hospital in Salmon Arm, uh, where we waited for five hours. You're wanting to know how long the hospital times are in, in BC. It's around five hours. And then uh, on the way home, our kids got the stomach flu. And uh, so that was, a, that was a lovely trip home. Uh, we, we had never really had this many issues uh, going to and, and from conference before, which you know, made me wonder, you know, what was God trying to teach us in this particular moment? And I, I wrestled with this for a few days until I remembered uh, what I was preaching on this Sunday, and that is Genesis chapter 32, uh, where we are going to see Jacob wrestle with God. And I thought that was also providential. I, I realized in that moment that I had maybe become a little bit like Jacob. I had become uh, independent, uh, self-sufficient. And so to be put into situations where I now had to rely on someone else was a humbling experience, to say the least. But just like Jacob, as we'll see, uh, it was for my good. Uh, it's been a few weeks since we've been in Genesis. So I'll, I'll just give a little bit of the context around the passage that we will be looking at this morning. Uh, we've been following the life and times of, of Jacob. And uh, Jacob, as I uh, mentioned, he was self-sufficient. He was a self-sufficient man, grabbing out opportunities as they presented themselves. Uh, when he was born, he was uh, grabbing the heel of his twin brother. Uh, that's why he's called Jacob, means heel grabber. Uh, Jacob wanted to be first. He wanted the, the blessing of the firstborn, but his brother Esau was ahead of him at birth. So that kind of 
negated that. Yet, uh, Jacob was able to cheat Esau uh, first out of the birthright with a bowl of uh, red stuff. And then he deceived his old and blind father, Isaac, by pretending to be Esau and thus stole the blessing of the firstborn. And when Esau came for the blessing, uh, Isaac had to say to him, your brother came deceitfully and he has taken away your blessing. And Esau responded, "Uh, is he not rightly named Jacob? Jacob, he was a deceiver. He was a, a heel grabber. Esau thus was so furious that he planned to kill Jacob after their father had died. And so uh, Jacob was then forced to flee for his life. But before he left the promised land, uh, the Lord met him in a dream at Bethel, where Jacob, as you remember, uh, saw a ladder with its top in the heavens and the angels of God ascending and descending on it. And God promised Jacob, behold, I am with you and will keep you wherever you go and will bring you back to this land, right? That was a a promise that Jacob could hold on to. And so uh, after a long journey, uh, Jacob, he finally arrived at the home of his uncle Laban, who would prove to be a good match for Jacob. You see, Laban was also a greedy deceiver. And so when uh, Jacob fell in love with Laban's beautiful daughter, Rachel, and, uh, and said that he would serve Laban seven years for her on the wedding night, Laban, he, uh, he switched his daughters, giving Jacob the homely Leah instead of the beautiful Rachel. Uh, and then Laban, on top of that, uh, extorted another seven years of service from Jacob for Rachel. And it looked as though uh, Jacob had finally met his match in Laban. But then, of course, that would change, right? After working 14 years for Rachel, Rachel, <laughs> that's Rachel and Leah together, uh, Rachel and Leah, uh, Jacob agreed to continue working for Laban and his compensation would be his own herd of sheep and goats. Uh, Jacob would get the speckled and spotted animals and Laban, he would get the solid colored animals. Uh, But then Laban removed the the speckled and spotted animals from the herd and placed them in charge of his sons far away so that uh, Jacob would have no chance of increasing the size of his flock. Yet, Jacob would get the better of his uncle Laban. We're told that Jacob increased greatly and had large flocks, female servants and male servants and camels and donkeys. And and Jacob explains to his his wives, God has taken away the livestock of your father and has given them to me. We see that the the independent, self-sufficient Jacob has become rich at Laban's expense. And so at this point, he, Jacob, he decides to, to flee with his wealth, going back to the promised land in obedience to God's command. But Jacob's flight obviously doesn't go unnoticed. Laban confronts Jacob one last time, and they agree to an uneasy truce, right? The Lord watch between you and me when we are out of one another's sight. Although no one is with us, see God is witness between you and me. And this brings us to our text this morning, where uh, we will see God humble Jacob's self-sufficiency so that Jacob is able to enter into the promised land fully reliant on God alone. So if you have your Bibles open, I invite you to follow along with me 
as I read for us from Genesis chapter 32, beginning in verse 1. Jacob went on his way, and the angels of God met him. And when Jacob saw them, he said, this is God's camp. So he called the name of that place Mahanaim. And Jacob sent messengers before him to Esau, his brother, in the land of Seir, the country of Edom, instructing them, thus you shall say to my Lord Esau, thus says your servant Jacob, I have sojourned with Laban and stayed until now. I have oxen, donkeys, flocks, male servants, and female servants. I have sent them to my Lord in order that I may find favor in your sight. And the messengers returned to Jacob saying, we came to your brother Esau and he is coming to meet you and there are 400 men with him. Then Jacob was greatly afraid and distressed. He divided the people who were with him and the flocks and herds and camels into two camps, thinking if Esau comes to the one camp and attacks it, the, then the camp that is left will escape. And Jacob said, O God of my father Abraham and God of my father Isaac, O Lord, who said to me, return to your country and to your kindred that I may do you good. I am not unworthy of the least of all the deeds of steadfast love and all the faithfulness that you have shown to your servant. For with only my staff, I crossed this Jordan and now I have become two camps. Please deliver me from the hand of my brother, from the hand of Esau, for I fear him that he may come and attack me, the mothers with the children. But you said, I will surely do you good and make your offspring as the sand of the sea, which cannot be numbered for multitude. So he stayed there that night. And from what he had with him, he took a present for his brother Esau, 200 female goats and 20 male goats, 200 ewes and 20 rams. 30 milking camels and their calves, 40 cows and 10 bulls, 20 female donkeys and 10 male donkeys. These he handed over to his servants, every drove by itself, and said to his servants, pass on ahead of me and put a space between drove and drove. He instructed the first, when he saw my brother meets you and asks you, to whom do you belong? Where are you going and whose are these ahead of you? Then you shall say, they belong to your servant, Jacob. They are our presents sent to my Lord Esau. And moreover, he is behind us. He likewise instructed the second and third and all who followed the droves. You shall say the same thing to Esau when you find him. And you shall say, moreover, your servant Jacob is behind us. For he thought, I may appease him with the present that goes ahead of me. And afterward, I shall see his face. Perhaps he will accept me. So the present passed on ahead of him, and he himself stayed that night in the camp. The same night he arose and took his two wives, his two female servants and his 11 children, and crossed the ford of the Jabbok. He took them and sent them across the stream and everything else that he had. And Jacob was left alone. And a man wrestled with him until the breaking of the day. When the man saw that he did not prevail against Jacob, 
He touched his hip socket, and Jacob's hip was put out of joint as he wrestled with him. Then he said, Let me go, for the day has broken. But Jacob said, I will not let you go unless you bless me. And he said to him, What is your name? And he said, Jacob. Then he said, Your name shall no longer be called Jacob, but Israel, for you have striven with God and with man and have prevailed. Then Jacob asked him, Please tell me your name. But he said, Why is it that you ask my name? And there he blessed him. So Jacob called the name of the place Peniel, saying, For I have seen God face to face, and yet my life has been delivered. The sun rose upon him as he passed Penuel, limping because of his hip. Therefore, to this day, the people of Israel do not eat the sinew of the thigh that is on the hip socket, because he touched the socket of Jacob's hip on the sinew of the thigh. May God bless the reading of his word. Escaping from the, his confrontation with Laban uh, was only a small part of Jacob's concern. Uh, he, he knew that in returning to the promised land, he was now exposing himself to the hatred and sworn revenge of Esau. Uh, in verse 1, Jacob approaches the border of the land and he is met not by Esau, but rather by the angels of God. When, uh, when he had left the promised land, he saw the angels of God at Bethel. And here again, he is met by the angels of God. Just like the, the Garden of Eden, the promised land appears to be guarded by angels. You, you remember when, when Adam and Eve rebelled against God, God expelled them from paradise. And at the east of the Garden of Eden, he placed the cherubim and a flaming sword that turned everywhere to guard the way to the tree of life, Genesis 3 verse 24 says. But, but Jacob doesn't seem to fear the angels. No, as soon as he sees the angels of God, he says in verse 2, this is God's camp. Jacob is divinely refreshed by the presence of the angels. Later in Psalm 34 verse 7 uh, David would write, the angel of the Lord encamps around those who fear him and delivers them. Jacob is reminded in this moment that the one who fears the Lord need fear no other. Thus, Jacob can seek to make, make peace with his brother Esau. In verse three, he sends messengers to Esau who were instructed to say to him, thus says your servant Jacob. I have sojourned with Laban and stayed until now. I have oxen, donkeys, flocks, male servants, and female servants. I have sent to tell my Lord in order that I may find favor in your sight. Jacob had deceived Esau for the blessing of the firstborn, but now he calls himself your servant Jacob. And he calls Esau my Lord. He tells Esau that he has become so prosperous that he doesn't need his father's uh, share of the inheritance. Surely this will be enough to appease Esau, right? 
But the messengers, they return, and, and not with a reply from Esau. No, they return with alarming news. We came to your brother Esau, and he is coming to meet you, and there are 400 men with him. And in verse 7, it says that Jacob was greatly afraid and distressed. Where are the angels now that Jacob had met as he entered into the land? From, from Jacob's standpoint, Esau is still intending to kill him. Why else would he come with 400 men, a small army? So, so what does Jacob do? He does uh, three things. First, he schemes. He schemes. Why, why are we surprised that he schemes? This is what Jacob is good at, is it not? He's a master of turning disaster into profit. He comes up with a brilliant plan. He divides the people who were with him and the flocks and herds and camels into two camps, thinking if Esau comes to the one camp and attacks it, then the other camp will be able to escape. It's a brilliant plan. But then the second thing Jacob does is, is rather surprising and almost uncharacteristic of Jacob. He prays to the Lord for deliverance. He prays to the Lord for deliverance. You see, up until this point, he's been almost intending to deliver himself out of all of his trials and tribulations. But here he prays to the Lord for deliverance. And the interesting thing about this is that this is the longest prayer that we see in Genesis. It comes from Jacob. In verse 9, he prays, O God of my father Abraham, and God of my father Isaac, O Lord, who said to me, return to your country and to your kindred, that I may do you good. I am not unworthy of the least of all the deeds of steadfast love, all the faithfulness that you have shown to your servant. For with only my staff, I crossed this Jordan, and now I have become two camps. <laughs> Jacob admits that he is unworthy of God's steadfast love and faithfulness to him that has uh, prospered him and protected him all of these years in spite of his trickery, in spite of his deception. He continues in verse 11, please deliver me from the hand of my brother, from the hand of Esau, for I fear him, there's the truth of the matter, that he may come and attack me, the mothers with the children. But you said, he's calling on, on God's promise to him. I will surely do you good and make your offspring as the sand of the sea, which cannot be numbered for multitude. Right, so, so Jacob, he finally realizes that he cannot actually deliver himself and that he needs the Lord to deliver him. And, and not only him, notice, to deliver also the mothers with the children. You see, Jacob is actually concerned about someone else other than himself. In this moment, we're, we're beginning to see a new Jacob. But Jacob is still a schemer, which is why the, the third thing we see him do is he attempts to appease Esau with a series of magnificent gifts. Uh, one commentator notes uh, that this is the same approach that Jacob took to get the birthright. The only difference is that the price has gone up. <laughs> and he will now have to uh, offer more than just food, more than just red stuff. And so that night, uh, verse 13 says, he took a present 
for his brother Esau, 200 uh, female goats and 20 male goats, uh, 200 ewes and 20 rams, 30 milking camels and their calves, 40 cows and 10 bulls, 20 female donkeys and 10 male donkeys. You, you farmers are just like adding this up as you're going, right? This was a gift fit for a king. And to make sure that these gifts had the, the greatest impact on Esau, Jacob separated the groups of animals so that Esau, he would have enough time to uh, evaluate the animals and, and admire them and, and interact with the servants before the next group arrived. Jacob instructed the, the servants in charge of each group to say the same thing. They belong to your servant, Jacob. They are a present sent to my Lord Esau. And moreover, he's behind us. He's coming. Jacob hopes that his humility mixed with wave after wave of royal gifts will appease the anger of Esau. And so verse 21 says, the present passed on ahead of him and he himself stayed that night in the camp. In the back of, of Jacob's mind is, is still the, the, the burning question, what if, what if this caravan of presents doesn't appease Esau? What then? This was Jacob's fear. And so he makes one last desperate arrangement. Look at verse 22. The same night he arose and took his two wives his two female servants and his 11 children and crossed the ford of the Jabbok. He took them and sent them across the stream and everything else that he had. Jacob takes a big risk here crossing the Jabbok during the night with his wives and children. I mean, this would have been a, a dangerous enough task in the daylight, let alone at night. But Jacob feels like this is less dangerous than a possible attack by Esau's forces. But then finally in verse 24, we read that Jacob was left alone. He was left alone. Everything that he had was now across that river. One commentator notes that this evokes a sense of of a complete letting go or a complete separation from, from everyone and everything. Jacob is separated from his, his wives and his children and his servants and his wealth. He has nothing to hide behind now. He is laid bare before God and man. And it's in this moment, in the darkness, that suddenly... What appears to be a man attacks Jacob. Is this Esau coming to kill him? Is this a robber trying to steal from him? Jacob doesn't know. Whoever it is, they wrestled with him until the breaking of the day. They were certainly strong and powerful. But Jacob himself is no pushover. Remember back in Genesis 29, Jacob was able to roll away the stone from the mouth of the well, which Normally it took a few shepherds to do. So Jacob fights. He fights back with all of his might. One commentator said, um, in the ancient Near East, wrestling had a very different association from the 
buffoonery of TV bouts in our culture. One way in which a legal case could be settled was by the ordeal of a wrestling match, a trial by combat, as it were. And here Jacob was on trial in this struggle. Is the unknown to Jacob, he was wrestling with a divine being. Centuries later, the prophet Hosea would remind Jacob's descendants of their forefathers' bout. He strove with the angel and prevailed. He wept and sought his favor. Hosea 12 verse 4 says, Jacob has spent his entire life wrestling. In his mother's womb, he wrestled with his twin brother Esau, and and they have been in contention ever since. He wrestled with his father Isaac, and by deception, received the blessing. He wrestled with Laban, and by trickery, fled from him. Jacob has always wrestled with man, but here, here he wrestled with God. Jacob doesn't realize it yet, but he's in the grip of God. Finally, in verse 25, we read, When the man saw that he did not prevail against Jacob, he touched his hip socket, and Jacob's hip was put out of joint as he wrestled with him. As I said, Rhea dislocated her elbow at conference. Uh, We're not entirely sure how she did it. They were at the beach. She was on one of the, the lawn chairs, and I don't know if she fell or just, I don't know, did something to to her arm. The, the, the doctor uh, called it a subluxation of the radial head, or as it, as it is more commonly called, uh, nursemaid's elbow. Uh, somehow she dislocated her elbow, but then the, the process of uh, putting her into the car seat and, and moving her arm to, uh, to get the strap over, uh, somehow that process is what put it back into place. Um, so, so when we went to the, the hospital, uh, she was moving it, uh, just fine. At one point she was, uh, spinning around in circles and we felt like idiots because we, we thought, could you just act broken so that, so that people don't think that we're dumb for coming in? Um, cause she had been, uh, crying when it, whenever we would touch it. And, and so we, we knew that there was something wrong. We just didn't know what. And, and, uh, yeah, the x-rays came back and, and everything was, was fine. And, and we got this, this explanation, which was, which was good. The, the frailty of men, right? Uh, here, just a, just a touch of the hip socket and Jacob's hip is out of joints. Jacob's opponent is so strong that he is able to cripple Jacob in an instant. Jacob can, he can no longer fight. And all he can do is, is hold on for dear life. Suddenly the, the man begins to speak in verse 26. He says, let me go for the day has broken. But Jacob responds, I, I will not let you go unless you bless me. When I was younger, my brother and I, we would wrestle. Uh, the only problem is that my, my brother was 10 years older than me. So uh, it, there wasn't really much of a contest. Yeah, he would sit on me and I'd be, basically be done. 
Uh, but I, I would still act as though I was able to gain some advantage, right? You know, he would, he would have me pinned and I would say to him, you know, just wait, I'll, I'll get you. But it, it never really materialized, never happened. Jacob here, he still thinks that he can gain the upper hand. He can gain some sort of advantage, even though he's clearly lost the match. You know, maybe he can still get something out of his opponent who, who he's, he's slowly realizing is divine. But the stranger is not yet ready to bless Jacob. No, instead in verse 27, he asks Jacob, what is your name? What is your name? We must realize that this would have been an embarrassing question for Jacob. Because the person's name wasn't simply their name. It revealed their character. One commentator writes, for us, a name is simply a matter of identification. Right? You're Trisha. You're Fred. Right? For the ancient Semites, However, the, the name was far more important. For them, it was a matter of identity. A man did not simply have his name. He was his name. And notice how Jacob responds. He says, my, my name is Jacob. My name is Jacob. And by, by divulging his name, Jacob was di- disclosing his character. It's as though he was saying, uh, I am a heel grabber. I am a deceiver. I am a cheater. I am rightly named Jacob. His whole life, he had been a grabber and a deceiver. But in one word, he confesses his sins. Jacob. And in a stunning turn of events, the stranger says to him in verse 28, your name shall no longer be called Jacob, but Israel. For you have striven with God and with man and have prevailed. <coughs> Jacob's name is changed from Jacob, which means deceiver, heel grabber, to Israel, which means God strives. Jacob strove with humans all his life and prevailed. But here, here Jacob strove with God himself and has amazingly prevailed. Jacob now knows that the stranger is God for it was God who changed Abram's name to Abraham and Sarai's name to Sarah. Jesus himself would change Simon's name to Cephas, which means Peter. And in the book of Revelation, Jesus, the exalted Lord, promises those who conquer a new name. But also Jacob knows the stranger is God because he said, you have striven with God. In Genesis, uh, God has sometimes appeared in human form, or at least it it appears that way, right? God walked and and talked with, with Adam and Eve in the Garden of Eden. God dined with Abraham discussing at length his intent to destroy Sodom and Gomorrah. But in order to make sure that that he has indeed been wrestling with God, Jacob asks the man in verse 29, please tell me your name. 
but the man refuses to give his name. And instead, what does he do? He blesses Jacob. What relentless, crippling, transforming grace Jacob has received. Jacob's persistence is is turned into awe. As verse 30 says that Jacob called the name of the place Peniel, saying, for I have seen God face to face, and yet my life has been delivered. Peniel means face of God. In Exodus 33, verse 20, the Lord says to Moses, you cannot see my face, for man cannot see me and live. Yet here Jacob has looked upon the face of God and has been spared. Earlier Jacob had prayed, right? Please deliver me from the hand of my brother. But now Jacob says, my life has been delivered. Later, uh, Esau is going to come with his 400 men. And rather than attack Jacob, he's going to embrace him. And Jacob is going to say to Esau in Genesis 33, verse 10, I have seen your face which is like seeing the face of God and you have accepted me. Having seen the face of God, Jacob need fear not the face of Esau or the face of any other man. He has been delivered, not not just from the hand of Esau, but from the hand of God. Though Jacob appears to be the winner in this wrestling bout, it is the Lord who wins the victory. Jacob strives with God and overcomes. The the Lord cannot escape lame Jacob's grasp without bestowing the prize for which Jacob fights. Yet losing, the Lord wins. He suffers an apparent defeat to gain the true victory, which points us to what? The cross. It points us forward to the cross where Jesus, the true suffering servant of God, in agony endured because he was stricken, smitten by God and afflicted, Isaiah 53 verse 4 says. But Jesus prevailed in the agony of his defeat to bring us to God, right? Jesus took the blow of justice we deserve so that we, like Jacob, might see his face. The the night before his crucifixion, Jesus wrestled with God in the Garden of Gethsemane. He pleaded with the Father to spare him from the suffering he was about to endure. Yet, even in his anguish, he humbled himself before his heavenly Father and said, Nevertheless, not my will, but yours be done, Luke 22, verse 42 says. Uh, The writer of Hebrews puts it this way. In the days of his flesh, Jesus offered up prayers and supplications with loud cries and tears to him who was able to save him from death. And he was heard because of his reverence, Hebrews 5, verse 7 says. Jacob strove with God and was recreated into Israel. But Jesus is the true Israel who wrestled with God and through whom we are made a new creation. Jesus is the true and better Jacob who fully appeased the wrath of God so that we 
might receive the gift of grace. So, so undeserving, so unbelievable. Look at verse 31. Uh, The sun rose upon him as he passed Penuel, limping because of his hip. A A new day has dawned for Jacob, which has brought about a a new name, but also a new limp. He has a new limp, which will forever remind him of how God overpowered his self-sufficiency. And he has a new name, which will forever remind him of his new identity. Jacob, Israel, is, is now a changed person. Before uh, Jacob was determined to, to seize the promise and the blessing for himself. But now, now he sees that the fulfillment of the promise is the, the work of God alone. He is now ready to receive the promised land as God's gift to him and to his offspring. Verse 32 concludes, Therefore to this day the people of Israel do not eat the sinew of the thigh that is on the hip socket because he touched the socket of Jacob's hip on the sinew of the thigh. Every time the Israelites butchered an animal, they were reminded of this story of how God crippled the self-sufficiency of their forefather, Jacob, so that he could enter into the promised land. And the, the same was true for the nation of Israel. They could not enter the promised land in their own strength. It was a a reminder for them to rely on God alone and and receive the land as a gift. When, When God liberated Israel from Egypt, he gave them his law at Sinai for only a holy nation could live with a holy God in the promised land. But in the wilderness, Israel often rebelled against God and, and went their own way. Finally, when, when they were about to enter the promised land, the, the spies, they came back with a bad report of the land that they had spied out, saying the, the land is a land that devours its inhabitants and all the people that we saw in it are of great height, Numbers 13, verse 32 says. But it sounds like the, the bad report of Jacob's servants, right? He, he comes with 400 men. While hearing this report, Israel failed to to trust that God would give them this land and and they made plans to return to Egypt. And as a result, God decided that they could not enter the land. None of the men who have seen my glory and my signs that I did in Egypt and in the wilderness, and yet have put me to the test these ten times and have not obeyed my voice, shall see the land that I swore to give to their fathers." And none of those who despised me shall see it. Numbers 14, verses 22 to 23. Only those who rely on God alone can enter the land. But later, later a new generation would enter the land. And just like Jacob, a potential adversary would stand before Joshua with a drawn sword in his hand and who identified himself as the commander of of the army of the Lord. And the man says to Joshua in Joshua 6 verse 2, see I have given Jericho, that would be the first major city, into 
your hand with its king and mighty men of valor, Joshua 6 verse 2 says. Right? It, was, it was a token. This city was a token that the whole of Canaan was a gift from God to Israel. Israel didn't have to fight for it in its own strength. They would fight with the Lord on their side. Who is on the Lord's side? It's totally fitting. But Israel would still need to rely on God. And when they became self-sufficient Jacobs, God sent them into exile in Assyria and then later Babylon. And only when their their self-sufficiency was crippled and out of joints and they were willing to rely on God were they allowed to enter the land. Uh, in, In the New Testament, someone comes to Jesus and asks, Lord, will those who are saved be few? And Jesus says to them, uh, strive to enter through the narrow door. For many, I tell you, will seek to enter and will not be able. Luke 13 verses 23 and 24 says. It is Jesus saying that we have to, to work, that we have to strive to enter the kingdom of God. No, Jesus is saying that he is the door through which we enter the kingdom. But just like J- Jacob, we, we must lose our self-sufficiency and cling to Jesus. It is impossible for for self-sufficient people to enter the kingdom of God. In in Matthew 19, verses 23 and 24, Jesus again says, Truly I say to you, only with difficulty will a rich person enter the kingdom of heaven. Again, I tell you, it is easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for a rich person to enter the kingdom of God. What's he saying? He's saying that it's, it's hard for a rich person to enter the kingdom of God. Why? Because rich people tend to be self-sufficient. Rich people can get what they want when they want it. Rich people don't have to rely on anyone else. They are independent. And Jesus is saying that that it will be hard for independent, self-sufficient people to enter the kingdom of God. Instead, we receive the kingdom of God, not by our works, but by God's grace. Ephesians 2, 8 and 9, right? For by grace you have been saved through faith. And this is not your own doing. It is the gift of God, not as a result of works, so that no one may boast. Right? When the Philippian jailer asked Paul and Silas, what must they do to be saved? They responded with what? Believe in the Lord Jesus and you will be saved. Believe in the Lord Jesus and you will be saved. It seems so simple, but it's so difficult for self-sufficient people to rely on Jesus alone. But there it is. If we wish to enter the kingdom of God, if we wish to enter the true and better promised land, the new heaven and new earth, then we must cling to Jesus. Just like Jacob clung to God. Uh, I was reminded of this when uh, things that were out of my control kept coming my way. And maybe this is where some of you are at as well. You've got a few things coming at you that are out of your control. 
Uh, and maybe some of us are, are, are a little like Jacob, maybe more like Jacob than we care to admit. You know, maybe we're, we're struggling independently and self-sufficiently apart from the God we, we claim to believe and love. You know, we, we want to be part of his plan, but, but then we go and we make our own plans. And, and then when a crisis comes through his hand and our lives become crippled and, and all out of joints, we become aware of our weakness. We become aware of our need to depend on him for strength. So the reality is that God, God may be wrestling with some of us this morning. He, he may be asking us, what is your name? Church, this is God's grace in our lives. God meets us in our moments, our times, our seasons of brokenness. When there is nothing and no one left to rely on but him. When, when all that we have is across the Jabbok. And we're laid bare before God and man. It's in those moments that God meets us. And so today, will we lose our self-sufficiency, our independence, our, our grasping for what we want? Will we lose all of that and cling to Jesus Christ alone? Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we give you thanks for your word. Uh, we pray that you would be at work in our lives. We recognize that this will often be painful. But the good news is that you are a friend to sinners. And that you love us. That you want to see us become more like your son. And so we pray that you would do the hard work. That you would not leave us where we are, but that you would change us from Jacob to Israel. That you would give us a limp if need be so that we may learn to trust you more and more. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.